This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of experience who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips, proven frameworks, and share ways to help you delight your customers. Well, before we get into today's podcast, I have a special announcement. If you are leading a CX practice This is going to be a really important year for you, and uh, the stakes are higher because the economy is turning down, budgets can be constrained. I know it can feel overwhelming, and that is exactly why I've created the Your CX Roadmap Workshop. It is a half-day virtual workshop to do just that, walk you step-by-step through a plan using a proven methodology to ensure that you will increase customer attention, reduce the cost to serve, align with your senior leadership's goals, and most importantly, give you the peace of mind of knowing that you have a unique plan to track progress and measure performance. It's going to be January 19th. It's a half-day workshop, and for the first 15 people who register, there is a special discount. Um, it's going to be $200 off. Got tons of bonus tools and templates for you. Just going to be a great way to start the year. So uh, please visit my website, empoweredcx.com. Go uh, visit how we can help. I'll also have something in the show notes for this podcast on how you can learn more about it. Today, my guest is Rob Markey, who is a senior partner at Bain. And Rob is the co-inventor of the Net Promoter System. He is a co-author of The Ultimate Question 2.0 and the leader of Bain's NPS Loyalty Forum. He is the founder of Bain's Customer Strategy and Market Practice, a MBA graduate from Harvard Business School, and got his BA at Brown. What a luminary in the world of customer experience. So delighted to have him as a guest on the show today. We get into some interesting topics, uh, fascinating, talking about the room where it happened, where MPS was created, and how controversial it was at the beginning. Uh, the misinterpretation of Net Promoter Score by so many, and why that happens. And also, Rob talks about why that was the one question that was selected as the right question to measure customer loyalty. That and so much more as we ran out of time and broke this into two episodes. This is part one of a two-part episode with Rob Markey. Well, I am so excited today to have my guest on the show, Rob Markey, who is a senior partner at Bain & Company. And he has led dozens of successful customer-centric transformations at large global companies. He's a creator of Bain's approach to customer centricity. He introduced earned growth through customer value management. Are you undervaluing your customers in a Harvard Business Review article? He's a co-inventor of the Net Promoter System and the co-author of The Ultimate Question 2.0, Um, and leader of Bain's NPS Loyalty Forum. He is the founder of Bain's Customer Strategy and Marketing Practice, and he's been at Bain for over 30 years. If that wasn't enough, he has his MBA from Harvard and his BA from Brown, 
And when he's got some extra time, he's been known to run seven marathons and aspires to complete all the world majors by 2024. Oh, and by the way, he happens to host his own podcast, the Net Promoter System Podcast. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. And um, that's I. You you make me sound so much more important than I am. <laughs> so thank you. Ed. That's nice. Well, you are important, and you are uh, for someone who's been at least at least probably ten or eleven years in the CX. Uh, world. Um, you are a leader, you're a thought leader, you're an expert, you're someone who was a trailblazer for me personally uh, a decade ago when I was first cutting my teeth on it and um, just had a thirst for information that could help. I mean, it was, it was burgeoning. It was, it was new. Uh, people, people still don't know what it is, but um, people back then really didn't know what it was. So if you're trying to lead, you know, an effort, the the writings and the work that you did at Bain and Company and and along with uh, Fred Reicheld were so helpful to someone like me. Oh, that's I see that makes me really happy. That's I I like that feeling of um, knowing that I made a difference for somebody. So th- thank you. Well, and if you're listening now, you're gonna you're gonna come to realize through through our conversation how genuine. Uh, Rob is when he says that and how much he deeply cares about people and cares about and like me I mean that's one thing we have in common so I, I call this podcast the delighted customers and what I and 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 I'd love to before we even really get into this I'd love to hear what you think of this um, but from my perspective when we when we make an impact on someone's experience uh, as a customer and I think often it's easy to um, it's easy to miss how often throughout a day we are customers, whether whether it's calling a government agency, walking into a coffee shop, going to a bank, calling an insurance company, buying a book, what, whatever it is. And so if it's good or bad, it can change the trajectory of someone's day and impact other people's days. So for me, it does make a difference in the lives of people. What do you think? Well, of course, it, it can. It doesn't. Uh, well, it always makes some difference, um, whether that's significant or insignificant, whether that's positive or negative. That's up to the that's up to the company, yeah, up to the organization. But it always makes a difference. And and if I if I choose to to engage with you for some reason to fill some need, then you have an opportunity to make my day better, or you have an opportunity to make my day miserable. And you know, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't get to choose that. <laughs> you do. I only get to choose whether I engage with you. And in some cases, like government agencies, I may not even have a choice. Right. And and we've all been there, right? We've yeah. we've all been there. So I, I read the uh, the background sort of at a high level, but tell us how what led you into the world of customer experience. I mean, I think it, you know. It, I don't want to go back to my birth or something, but I, I did. Um, I had a grandfather who was a small business owner. Mm. He was a, he, he owned a, what's called a provisioner, a wholesale meat company in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm. And my very first job getting paid for doing work was working, you know, like scraping floors and cleaning equipment and stuff in his in his shop with his unionized workforce and 
the drivers and so on. And, and I got to watch him making decisions about how to serve the different restaurants and hotels and other people that he provided meat to. And I just remember there were times when we didn't have enough of a certain cut of beef or chicken or whatever um, for every order that we had in a day. Mm. And sometimes you could get it from a neighboring, it, back then all the, the provisioners were on the same street, Bolivar Road. Mm. And, and sometimes you could actually go and, and barter with uh, one of the neighboring shops mm. to get it, but sometimes you couldn't. Mm-hmm. So the choices he made about who would get the the things that we were out of or which restaurants had to pay cash up front and which ones he would allow to um, work on credit. You know, I'd ask him, like, why? What, did, what was that about? And he would tell me, and it, it just, it kind of instilled in me this idea that, wow, you know, there's a lot more to business than just selling something to whoever walks up. There's choices you make every day and how you serve them and which one, which customers you prioritize. And then as I, as I, um, you know, matured and got older and had real jobs after college and stuff, I observed similar things, but sometimes not being made in a conscious way, sometimes just being a, a result of, you know, internal process decisions or even internal politics. Hmm. And so I kind of got fascinated by this, this area where, you know, the business exists because of its customers. Like there is no business without customers. And yet bigger, the bigger a company gets, the more of it, an organization forgets that that's the reality. Mm. Um, the more they get focused on their functional priorities or a process or whatever. And so, you know, I just kind of fell into this situation where um, something I was fascinated about became an option for me to pursue by working with Fred Reichelt, by working at Bain and Company, by having a having the good fortune to have some clients that were really interested in making a transition from being product and function focused to customer focused. Hmm. So that became I, I had the the good luck to be in a place where I could have a career built around that. So you, the, your grandfather, my grandfather was the, the inspiration. Yeah. What, what, what did you call your grandfather? Grampy. Grampy. So <laughs> it's a grampy story. It's um, a grampy story. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. And they say more is caught than taught. And, you know, just by observing and watching him that, that influenced your life. And, and what you've done, you know, it, when I say you're you're uh, one of the thought leaders and experts in our industry, I mean, around the formation and um, the emergence of this thing called Net Promoter Score and Net Promoter System. Um, listening to us today, we'll have, Rob, people who are CX practitioners, we'll have CEOs and leaders of uh, people in financial services like insurance and wealth and, and banks and, and other people as well. Um, and so not everybody may be familiar with net promoter score. Um, so it, at just a very high level, if you would explain, and I know this could be a whole nother book, but what, what, what NPS is and what NPS is not. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I feel like you, 
in a way, if you're listening to this podcast, you'd, you'd have to have been under a rock for a few years not to know the what net promoter score is at, at its essence, right? Likelihood to recommend scored on a zero to 10 scale. Yeah. Nines and tens promoters, zero through six detractors, sevens and eights passively satisfied or called passives. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the derivation of it, the intent of it often is misinterpreted, right? People get confused by the fact that it's a, the question is about your likelihood to recommend. They think it's supposed to predict recommendation. Right. We chose that question out of many that we, I think there were 12 or 14 that we tested and we considered a lot more. We chose that one question because empirically, that was the question that best differentiated customers on the basis of their future uh, purchases, future retention, cost to serve, um, the recommendation, yes, the recommendations that they, that they make, the things that drive customer lifetime value. That was the, that was the objective function we were using when we were trying to decide on which one question would, would we use to help create what at the time we were calling the loyalty acid test. Yeah, what became a net promoter score? Well, bring bring us into the room where it happened. I know the in in Hamilton the musical there was this there was a scene famous song about Alexander Hamilton made this deal with Jefferson and Madison about relocating the nation's capital to Washington on the Potomac, which was in the South back then, um, not any longer, but was back then. And in exchange, he got some of the things around that he was looking for. The room where it happened, MPS is. You know, you're right. You had to have been under a rock, but thousands of organizations have adopted, including the bank that I used to work for, as uh, as a, as a uh, primary customer sentiment metric that we used. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 tell us, like, how did that thing originate? Well, it was really controversial, and, and you know, it's, a lot of people um, when they tell stories about things that were successful, they kind of gloss over the the bumps in the road and the ins and outs. And, you know, they say success, what is it? Success has many fathers and failure is an orphan or something like that. I I think I've said this before, you know, I was a doubter. I was actually, I I told Fred, I thought that this was insane (laughs) to go to a single question based metric. I thought that the math didn't work right. I thought that the, that it oversimplified the issue. Um, you know, and, and, and originally I, I, like many people, um, especially many market researchers, I didn't understand the potential of moving to a single question based indicator of customer, customer lifetime value. Um, because I could, uh, we had multiple multi-question indices that were significantly more predictive. So the math was much better. Mm-hmm. The what turned out like the reason I was wrong is because I underestimated the importance of simplicity. Mm, yeah, simplicity in communications, simplicity in framework. Um, and I underestimated the value of that simplicity for motivating action. 
<clears throat> so, you know, the turning point for me was, was when I was watching a, a, one of my clients, a, a, like the executive team of one of, my, one of the divisions of a company I was working with, debating the details of a more sophisticated customer loyalty metric. And they got all into the weeds about which questions and how they were weighted and all this stuff. And in frustration, the, the market researcher said, look, it, it, it's just like NPS. And then everybody's like, oh, okay. And then they started talking about what they should do. And I was like, holy cow, mm. I have been wrong about this for like two or three years. Wow. Um, I also, I think we in, in the aggregate were wrong about why NPS was powerful or what about, what about companies like Enterprise Rent-A-Car on whom we modeled this made it effective. So again, in the, the world of revisionist history, you'd say, oh, well, we had this idea, we came up with this system, we did all the, you know, and we magically infused it through the, or, through the world. Um, I think it caught fire because the metric was simple and because people, companies like GE latched onto it early and said, you know, into it. Um, American Express, Charles Schwab, they, they made it an important way that they measured progress in earning customer loyalty. But what made it effective was not the metric. It was what we did with it. It was providing individual pieces of feedback to individual employees in real time in raw form, like with the customer's con comments, and then creating a mechanism by which employees could have a follow-up conversation with a customer to learn more and creating some rigor around um, tracking down the root causes of systemic issues and resolving those in favor of customers with the right math, the right financial math. So I, I was wrong um, <laughs> in the room where it happened. I, I said, I actually withheld research. I was running the practice. I withheld resources from Fred for doing research. And that's why he enlisted the help of Satmetrics, a small software company at the time to help him do the research. And that's why to this day, you see Satmetrics' name on the trademark. Hmm. Because I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you more than made up for it. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes we all learn lessons. Um, and once we, once we're, sometimes the biggest skeptic, skeptics become the biggest promoters, pardon the pun, you know. Yeah, no, I, then that's, that's the case. I think I, I, I'm somebody who um, I actually generally learn slowly. But what, but because I learn slowly, I also learn deliberately and I, I generally understand why, um, something works or something doesn't partly because I fail a lot and you learn a lot from failure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so, um, the first, so then there's a book that comes out, the ultimate question, and then there's, there's five years that pass or so. What was the white space um, around 2011 that you said, you know, you and Fred said, um, hey, we, need, we need to write some more on this? So the ultimate question was originally published in like, I want to say 2006, 2007. Yeah. Um, 
between then and and 2011, uh, well, actually very soon after it was published, we started to realize more about what was required to make a company, a large global company successful with the net promoter system. We wrote about this in the ultimate question 2.0, like, like Allianz, the insurance company was right around that time. Phillips, um, right around that time. And, and it was during that time after the publication of the first book, and I'd say leading up to 2009 and 10, when Fred and I started writing the second book, we just realized that we needed to harden and solidify some of the, um, elements of the system around the score. And so if you really, if you read closely the ultimate question, the original book, there's very little mention of the system, Mm. the the, the processes that make it successful. And you read the second book, it goes into a lot of detail about how to use the feedback from customers to inspire employees to generate initiatives to increase the contact between employees and customers Mm -hmm. and that you know that was just we were learning fast in those days because we were coming down a steep experience curve nps was you know it was introduced to the world in 2003 we'd been experimenting with it since about 2000 um I had implemented it at one of my clients, or, you know, in, in the early days before the first article. And um, it really took off in the period just before and just after the 2007 publication of The Ultimate Question, the first book. Mm-hmm. So, so the experience we were accumulating at that point was just, you know, like we were doubling our experience our own Bain and company experience you know every few months and in the world it was probably about the same pace Hmm. so um so i i remember um well i'd love for you to share a little bit um touch on how the behavior of these different segments you know reacts as as you studied it and you saw, you know, the movement and, you know, why the delineation at, you know, zero to six and seven, eight and nine, 10, like what's the, if I were a CEO, what's the big deal? Why do you, it, maybe I should understand the question a little better. Yeah. Uh, why, why does this scoring system work? Yeah. Or why the delineation at the different points? Ah, yeah. Okay. Very common question. Why is a six, for example, designated a detractor? And the the answer is that it's empirical and there's a little judgment involved. So what we did is we drew we drew the curve of the um, projected lifetime value of respondents by likelihood to recommend zero, one, two, three, four, five, all, all the way up to 10. And what we found was that there's the, you know, customer lifetime value is, is um, actually there's a little bump, but there's a, a, a bump at zero. It's actually a little bit higher. It goes down at one, two, three, and then it starts to, you know, it bottoms out somewhere in the, the one, two, three area for different companies. It's different. And it starts up and then it flattens around six. 
um, and then it bumps up again at at eight and nine or eight nine ten, um, especially around nine ten. And so, those were the inflection points. We decided not to to bother too much with the small bump that we had at zero. In further examination over the years, what we learned was that um, a lot of really real, a lot of really really loyal customers who are temporarily angry with you over something that didn't go right mm. end up giving you those lowest scores, zero, one, two. Um, they want to be promoters again. They just, you, you did something to disrupt the relationship. But anyway, the six, that, that break point, six and seven and eight and nine was just you know, where the, the, the slope of the curve changed enough for us to draw a distinction. Now, the, the truth is that when you dig into it, you know, if you're in Japan, the breakpoint is a little different. Um, if you're in Brazil, the breakpoint is a little different. If you're in certain industries, but those differences are small enough that we made the decision early to, to just say, look, let's not quibble over that. What if, if you start to, if you introduce variation in the definition of promoter detractor passive, you create a tower of Babel. Mm. Then you have to spend more time explaining. And every minute you're, you're spending explaining is a minute you're not spending addressing the, uh, the fundamental issues and opportunities. Mm -hmm. One of the gems I like to, when I'm listening to, to my guests, I like to pull out gems that, that occur to me that we just kind of can easily fly by um, or fly over. And one thing you said, now it's come up twice, is this idea of simplification and the power of it. And I think it's a life lesson, um, as well as a, a quantitative metric in something like NPS. But the met, the, to me, the idea is simplification links to actionability more so than complexity does. Yeah. And there's probably I'm, some human behavioral reasons why that's true. Well, yeah. I mean, we're, our brains get overloaded with detail, right? Um, I think that, that we too often let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. I, I, I'm often asked, you know, aren't there things that are better than NPS? Why do you blah, blah, blah. And I, my, my answer is always, NPS is the worst customer sentiment metric ever invented, except for all the others that have been tried. Right. Love it. You know, to paraphrase Winston Churchill a little bit, but, but the point being, if it's okay to accept some imprecision in the math, yeah. if you gain enough in actionability. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get, I used to get asked a question all the time at, what, what about the passives? Why aren't they in the scoring? Well, it, it, it's again, empirical. Yeah. This net, the idea of the net score, it had two, two origins. The, the most important one was the observation that when we rank ordered companies within an industry on their average likelihood to recommend, and we tried to do, you know, correlation against, um, subsequent revenue growth rate. What we found was that we could explain somewhere around 
20% of the variation. It differed across industries, but, but 20 or 30% of the variation in revenue based on average likelihood to recommend. But that went up materially. Like we could explain between 20 and 50% or 60% of the variation in revenue growth when we used the net score. And so this, I, that was one piece. And then the other one was Fred's observation that um, in order to simplify discussion of financials, we talk about net profit. And people understand that net profit is a function of revenue minus cost. Right. Promoters generate more revenue. Detractors are a drag on revenue. That's the, you know, it's like that, that simplicity, that concept, I think people will understand. And he was right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was em empirical and motivational. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am going to, um, I am going to wind this down right now because we're, we're going to have to break this into two episodes because there's just too much to talk about. <laughs> okay. So this is part one. If you're listening, um, we're going to come back and we're going to, we're going to hit on some really important things as we kind of laid the groundwork for how MP, your background as well, but how MPS came to be the room where it happened. Um, you know, why, why it was uh, delineated at the point inflection points. It was what it is and what it isn't. We kind of covered that ground. I want to talk some more about um, today's world, you know, and how things like technology and digital transformation uh, affect CX from your standpoint, and a little bit about um, how leaders of organizations uh, may be tempted uh, to back off a little bit on their CX efforts in, in a struggling economy, uh, wherever it goes. So we'll talk about some of those things and a lot more on part two with Rob Markey. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.